it's missing the Costello to my Abbott. <laughs> if I can go back that far. Tweedledee, Tweedledum. There you go. Frickin' frack. We could keep going. But, you know, for time's sake, we were told, me and Mike, <laughs> me and Mike were told by our staff. and We have too much fun. Other people, that, yeah, we have too much fun. That's right. So the problem is now with the shorter time constraints, um, they made the long-winded ones sit down. Yeah. Oh, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, it's not true. Excellent. Nice. Excellent. You like that? That was good. That was that. good. Mm. Um, and today is about forgiveness. So, uh. <laughs> well, you have to forgive me. Uh, so maybe Mike will make an appearance in the future for <laughs> announcements, but for now, we'll try to keep it a little short. Yeah. That's all. all. Right. Good job there, Joel. All right. Well, we're so glad all of you could... Uh, be a part of our 10 a.m. It's good to see you this morning. Again, we're we're just we're tr- trusting the Lord. He's asked us to do three services, and we're trusting that that uh, we're going to make some more space for some more people to be a part of this experience. Our our goal every week, every time we come together, is basically that we would encounter the manifest presence of God. We believe that in His manifest presence is the fullness of joy, and that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So those are the things that pull us together and make it not only so to where we survive a week together, but we learn how to overcome. And so uh, would you pray with me as we get ready for God's Word? <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, uh, even this morning for um, just that the way in worship that as we sing songs together, that they, they prepare our hearts for what your Word has to say to us. And... Uh, we declare this day that your word is faithful, that your word is true, that it will last forever. And uh, even as, in some ways, your spirit will evaluate our lives by your word and, and, and will show us even our own deficiencies, the areas of disobedience, the areas of lack of trust, that you will do so not to produce regret in us, but you will do it in order to bring us to a place of repentance. And whether my friends here completely know it or not, there are many of us in this room who realize nothing is sweeter than repentance. That the ability to change, the ability to let go of things that don't work, to begin to be held by that which does work. And uh, today, Lord, Will you open up your word to us, illuminate by your Holy Spirit, that we might come to a place of change and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. So these last number of weeks and all the way into Easter, we're going to be talking about how do you manifest a supernaturally changed heart? If you have come to Christ, you have not just come to philosophy, you've not just come to morality, you have come into a supernatural relationship with all that Christ is and all that Christ has, all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has. And what he has given to you is the the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, who has all of the attributes of Jesus. You are in union with everything that Jesus is. You're in union with everything that Jesus has. And what Paul says is that that translates into a supernaturally changed heart. 
not just a restraint, not just simply refraining from some things, but rather a freedom to live in the fullness of who Jesus is and who he's called you to be. So all the way to Easter, we're asking the Lord, all the way up to Resurrection Sunday, we're saying, will you in greater ways manifest your attributes in us? And Paul says that the fruit of that union, because he doesn't call it the work of the union, he calls it the fruit of that union, that which is produced by being united to Christ are these genuine signs of his Spirit. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit. And what I'm asking you and and sort of challenging you in the best way that I can is to say, these should be ever increasingly manifesting in your life. They shouldn't be rare. They shouldn't be absent. They should be very present. And they should be present in all the relationships of your life. I mean, the truth is, friends, that the gifts of the Spirit can be, can be manifest in people who have no character. Because God does not repent when he gives his gifts. He doesn't take them back. And so sometimes he will pour out tongues on somebody who lies a lot. Or he'll pour out the gift of prophecy on somebody who's very bitter. And they'll, in their bitterness, prophesy. And so what Paul's saying is that this genuine sign of a supernaturally changed heart is not the extraordinary signs of the Spirit, but the signs that manifest in connection and relationship with others. And so the one we've come to, we started last week and we're finishing up this week, is the sign of patience. The Spirit's sign of patience. And, and in many ways, if any one of these we want to run away from, it's probably this one. There are many of you who probably have mistakenly at times prayed, Lord, give me patience, and instead, he gave you circumstances that required patience. And then you go, Lord, get me out of these circumstances. Instead of recognizing he just answered your prayer, and you didn't like the answer. And so today, we want to look at, we want to look at the connection to patience, or the sign of patience, as Paul describes it in the letter he wrote to the Romans in chapter 12. And I'm going to ask you to read this scripture, because this scripture unpacks for us what it looks like to have spirit-filled patience. Would you read the word with me? I like it when you read it out loud. So let's read together. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the principle of patience in the Bible is very clearly stated this way. You do not overcome evil with evil. You can only overcome evil with good. And it requires patience when evil is done to you It requires patience to respond with good when evil has been done to you. That's the biblical principle here. Now, we are particularly focusing on dealing with people who are negative towards you. For example, on the one end of the spectrum, you have people who irritate you or annoy you, or people who in some ways just don't like you. No matter what you do, they just don't like you. So that's one level of people that that person that Paul is talking about dealing with patiently here. Matter of fact, if people like you, it's not that hard to deal with them patiently. You don't really need patience if they do everything you want them to do, or they do everything you want them to do. It's only when you have irritants that patience begins to be necessary. So the, this is irritating, annoying, or just people that don't like you. The middle section of people are people who have hurt you. Either they've lied to you, or they've betrayed you in some way, or they've disappointed you in some way. And so this is dealing with even a greater intensity. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes all the way to those people who intentionally misuse you. And he calls it those who persecute you. Those who have have made a a decision that they're going to make your life miserable in any way or shape that they can. And this can show up anywhere. It can show up in your family, it can show up among your friends, or a friend of a friend. It can be uh, at your workplace that someone decides that because you're a Christian, then you are the target of all of their bitterness and wrath against all Christians of all time. And so what Paul is talking about is anyone who fits on the spectrum of negative dealing with you. And he says, these are the ones where your patience is going to have to be supernaturally evident. And, at, at, and it begins to make some sense, in a way, if you think about it, this principle, because if you respond with evil to evil, then evil has won. And in some ways, what you've done, if you curse those who curse you, you're actually reinforcing that they were right about you. You're actually showing that they had a right to say or do what they did because you're just as bad as they thought you were. So the only way that you're ever going to overcome evil in any sense in relationships is to respond with patience, which means to respond with good. The problem with many people is that they think passivity is patience. Passivity is passivity. It is not patience. Patience is always an active emotional state. It is always a decision of the will. It's always a posture of the heart. A patient heart is not a passive heart. The goal that I have for you, and and whether or not we reach it or not, will be up to you and the work of the Spirit in your life. But the goal is this, that you would never give in to bitterness, and you would not give up on hope. See, passive people have given up hope, and they've just resigned. 
And bitter people have given up altogether and said, no one cares for me but me. Here's, here's the problem with, when evil wins and bitterness settles into your heart. The people who actually hurt you will never get the bitterness. The ones who will get it are the ones you love and the ones who love you. Because that evil root of bitterness will be spread to the people who actually care about you. Matter of fact, I mean, all you have to do is you begin to realize that there are pretty simple fears that we deal with on a core level. One of uh, the best Christian psychologists I know boils it down to two basic fears. The fear that either I am disconnected from everything and everybody that will make me feel fulfilled or satisfied. Many people feel alone even in a crowd. That's that fear manifesting. And the fear of losing control. Or I would say it this way, the fear of being powerless. And what happens to many of us, not all of us, but many of us had seasons of powerlessness in our childhood where someone else or something else was in control of us that was not pleasant and could actually be tragic or traumatic or difficult. If you have ever experienced a season of powerlessness, whether it was as bad as abuse or violation or just neglect, what it does to your psyche, what it does to your heart, is fracture you. And it makes everything easy to be bitter about. And then it also makes everybody that you're, that you're dealing with have to deal with you through the filter of your fear. So some people, when they are hurt, or when they're, they're betrayed, or they're, they're mistreated in some way, some people are like me, because of the way my personality is and the way my soul was hurt, I decided that I would be angry because anger makes me feel powerful. Anger gives an adrenaline rush. Anger can give clarity. Anger can give courage to say and do things you would not normally do. And so I, when someone would hurt me, that sense of powerlessness would come and then anger would take the place of the powerlessness and I would rise up to be bigger than them, and I'd say, I'm going to hurt you worse than you ever hurt me, so you never hurt me again. Now, maybe I'm the only one in the room that does that. Although I've seen, you, I've seen some of you drive, and the words that were coming out of your mouth, because I can read lips. So I, I think they're probably more than just me that decide they're going to, if somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them worse then they hurt me. But there are a lot of you in this room, and perhaps you know the 10 o'clock group is the totally this, I don't know. But there are a lot of you that when you get hurt, you withdraw. You just become silent. You just, you just lock it all behind a wall, and you don't say anything, you don't do anything, but basically you are retaliating. You're retaliating by saying, you will not have a relationship with me because you don't do what I want you to do. And this happens in marriage and friendships. In friendships, it can happen in such a way that you never see that friend again. Or you never get another chance with that friend. But it happens in marriage sometimes, and, and a lot of times the woman is more prone to the withdrawal. It's not always, but oftentimes. The woman is more prone to withdrawal, and the man's sitting, going, sitting there going, because he's clueless, 
And he's trying to say, what did I do wrong this time? And she's saying nothing. Nothing. You see, even in saying nothing, there's a retaliation. In other words, I can't even trust my emotions to you because you hurt me. So even the withdrawal, which seems like it's not escalating the conflict, is actually a retaliation against the relationship. So that, now, it could be that the person says, I need some space and some time to get my thoughts together, but that's not usually the case. The case is normally I put up a wall against anybody who makes me feel powerless. So the one way of responding is I become more powerful. The other is I withdraw from the power. And my power is absent. My power is withdrawing. Either way, it's retaliation, friends. And yours might look prettier than mine because maybe you never punched anybody or maybe you never really fought with anybody or maybe you never cursed anybody out and you could think, oh, man, I'm so righteous. But any kind of retaliation, any bitterness, any wall that you have up is a wall against relationship with everybody. Not just the one who hurt you, but more than that, it's a wall against trust with God. See, this is not just a matter of discipline. This is not just a matter of, let me be a little more patient. I'm saying to you, this is a matter of a supernaturally changed heart that no longer says, I have to protect myself. It's a heart that no longer passively protects itself or actively protects itself, but begins to actively take your stand. And I have one who is already protecting me, who's already defending me. This is why Paul in this writing says, you don't avenge yourself, you have an avenger. He says, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for God. See, when you withdraw, you don't leave room. And when you attack, you don't leave room. Because in a way, what you're saying is, I take God's place. I'm my own defender. No one's going to rise up and hurt me. Boy, thankfully, Jesus didn't say that. He was bruised for our iniquities by his stripes. We are healed. He chose not to defend himself. He could have kept the nails out of his hands. He could have kept the spear from his side. Could have kept them from lashing him on his back. But it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And you were that joy. At some point, the supernaturally changed heart has to have a different motivation than self-protection. Or there will never be any patience. Because the enemy of your soul, he knows your weak points. And if he can get you on impatience, he's got you. I mean, isn't it fascinating all the people in the world who say, I trust God, but they're so impatient? You have to question, do you really trust God if you're impatient? Because then the commitment of your heart is to your agenda. The commitment of your heart is to your protection. The trust is your own ability to defend and withdraw and protect yourself. So how can you say, I trust God, but I'm impatient? The two don't go together. Am I making sense? I know it's heavy. But at some point, you're going to have to decide, I really want to go with God. See, I believe 
And, and, and again, maybe it's just me and I'm all alone in this. But I believe that these days, there are people being called not just to be nice, moral, nice, philosophical Christians. I think that's a worthless place to be. I think what God is calling us to is to run with Him. I think you were made to run with Him. I know I was made to run, not just to walk and stumble and trip up and and crawl. I think I was made to, I think I am most myself when I'm running with the Lord. But I don't think I can run with Him and not have a supernaturally changed heart that is filled with patience in His protection. And in other words, it means that I'm, I'm not fearful. I'm not fearful. I'm not fearful because I'm never powerless. I have connection to the Almighty. <laughs> I have connection to the omnipresence, to the omnipotent, to the omniscient God. And he said he will never break that connection with me. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So the minute that I break that connection, I go into fear and selfishness. This is, this is the principle of patience in the Scripture. The moment you say, I will not suffer this any longer, you have stepped out of being a servant. Now you're God. Let me tell you, I'm a bad God. You're a bad God. All us people here are bad gods. The King James is really clear here. It says that the word in Greek should be translated suffering long. The minute you tell God, I've suffered enough, you've seen the end of your patience. You've seen the end of it. And sometimes what happens is we will say, I've had enough. And I, I think I told you, even last week, that we have little sayings when we've lost our patience. I've got to get this off my chest. No wonder any of us have any chest left. But I'm mostly afraid of those who keep giving me a piece of their mind. I am not sure where the rest of it has gone, but I'm pretty sure there's not much left. I know this is not easy, but friends, this is what will make you powerful. This is what will connect you in such a way to the power of God is if you know what it is to be patient. Well, here are the practices of patience. of how to Basically, patience, biblically speaking, is overcoming evil with good. Okay, so I want you to say this with me. Biblical patience, biblical patience. is the practice, the practice of overcoming evil with good. And now I want you to take your righteous finger, not your unrighteous one. Your righteous finger, point at somebody that you feel like pointing at. Find, uh, yeah, look them in the eye. Don't, some of you are, there you go. All right, now, biblical patience, biblical patience. is the practice, the practice of overcoming evil, overcoming evil. With, good. with good. Some of you were overcome just then. Look, I, I know it's a kind of a silly way, but I'm wanting you to understand that it is not passivity, friends. When you begin to exercise patience, you become the most courageous person in the relationship. When you begin to exercise patience, you are the most active heart, not the most passive heart. 
If you have resigned, you are not patient. If you have given up, you're no longer patient. Giving up means giving up. And many people have gotten to that place. I had someone speak to me even Wednesday night when we're doing emotional healing, came up and said, you know, I'm older now. I don't have any emotions. I checked them for a pulse. No, I said to him, you know why you have no emotions? Is you have too much pain. You have so much pain, you've shut down, and you're no longer in touch with your emotions. That is not a good thing. <laughs> you thought it was a good thing. That's a bad thing. How can the joy of the Lord be your strength if you no longer can have joy? See, one of the things that you have to begin to understand is you will not be patient if you're dishonest. Only honest people, radically honest people can be patient. And Paul makes this clear in Romans 12. Look, he gives us five practices. They all, they all will work, friends. One, he says, bless those who curse you. Now think about it. Your instinct when someone curses you is to curse them back. But you reverse the curse by blessing. As a matter of fact, the minute you start praying for someone who curses you, you've already turned a corner. I, I, every time I think about this thing of blessing something, I think of a story Ron Walborn tells about playing golf with this young man who was a horrible, awful golfer. And a guy was hitting the ball all over the course, and every time he hit it, he would just, he would just curse the ball. He tell, Actually, this is what he was, he was saying, God condemned the ball. Now, he didn't know that's what he was saying, but that's what he was saying. Because he, he just used the curse word. And my friend Ron looked at him and said, said, uh, I think you're praying the wrong prayer. You don't want God to damn the ball. You want God to bless the ball. So the guy gets up on the tee. He's getting ready to swing. And he looks at Ron and goes, God bless? <laughs> see, he had a lot more authority when he cursed the ball than when he blessed it, you see. But he goes, God bless? And he pulls up and he swings. He hits a perfect, dead, solid, straight shot. <laughs> And he looked at Ron and says, Sir, I perceive you're in touch with the supernatural. <laughs> you know, we of all people should recognize the power of bless. Because your words matter, friends. Now, I, I, I mean, some of you, it definitely can be that you've gotten so used to every word out of your mouth being a curse. Every emphasis that you make being a curse. Well, guess what happens? Those words produce. Those words produce. And when you speak to your, your friends or your children and you curse them, there's power in your words. Well, if you reverse that and suddenly you who had a foul mouth and you who had a profane heart begins to believe that you're in touch with the God who loves to bless, and you began to speak blessing, you're releasing blessing. You have power. But if you just do what everybody else does, then you are as evil as they are. You are no different. And here's the other thing, though. Some of us, we have 
been religious our whole lives, and so we don't curse, but we say things like turnips, <laughs> oh shoot. You know, here's the thing. I, here's the thing I want you to get. Get in touch with what you really feel. Get in touch with what you really feel. If, if your worst word ever is darn, that's lovely, but it still means the same thing. <laughs> you have to begin to get in touch and say, I am angry right now. I am hurt right now. Guess who can handle that? Your father. <laughs> it is so funny that we are dishonest with an all-knowing God. Probably one of the stupidest things on the planet. Why be dishonest with he who knows your heart? Oh, God, I'm really not mad. Oh, uh, yes, you are. Oh, I'm really not that hurt. Yes, you are. It's deep. And you're playing like you're not. There are many of us here. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we want to live in the fullness of the Spirit. You cannot live in the fullness of the Spirit and be dishonest. And I, what I mean by that is there are many of you in this room, you never tell lies, but you hardly ever tell the truth either. Because you don't reveal anything. You're too afraid. You're too afraid to be known. It's an interesting thing that many of us want to be understood, but we're afraid to be known. can't have both ways. And when you get before God, he knows already, so you might as well just be naked before him. Just say, look, I'm, I'm raw. This hurts. And it doesn't matter if it shouldn't hurt, friends. If it hurts, it hurts. So then you turn around, you give space for God to be your comforter. You, get, you give space for God to take care of you, and then you say, I bless that person who did this to me. I pray for them. Well, it's very hard to do that if you don't forgive. And Jesus teaches that you have to forgive from your heart. This is why when I teach people to forgive or I walk on them through forgiveness, I don't, I, don't, I don't say, okay, do whatever you want. I lead them through forgiveness. Because most people do not know how to forgive. There are many people who say, I forgive, but I'll never forget. What they mean is I haven't really forgiven in this sense. It's not that forgetting is, is the cause of your forgiveness. It's very likely you'll always remember what someone has done negatively to you. It is how you then judge them on the basis of that, and it's how that then affects your memory. For example, um, I, like to, I like to cut grass. Um, I don't always have time to do it, but I like to cut, I like to mow. Because when you're mowing, your mind goes where your heart needs it to go. Because you can't stand mowing. I mean, you have, to, you have to think about something else other than the grass. So I'm mowing, and all of a sudden, I go back 20 years, and I'm arguing with somebody from 20 years ago. I always win those arguments, too. <laughs> I am a brilliant arguer in my own mind. You know, I'm sitting there going, but instead of going, wow, why am I doing that? I'm immediately, I, I know why I'm doing that. It's because it's time to forgive. Because whatever I forgave them in the past is still in the memory of it bothering me in the present. And so I don't, I don't sit there and argue with God and say, Holy Spirit, why are you bringing this up to me? I immediately say, you're bringing this up because I'm ready to forgive. And right there, as I'm cutting grass, I have a Holy Ghost experience. And I began to get cleansed, and I get, get filled with his, his presence because I start to forgive. Here's the issue with many of us is that, see, you want to feel it before you give it. You'll never feel it before you give it. You give it, then you feel it. 
Forgiveness is for you, it's not for them. We'll talk in a minute about reconciliation, and we'll talk about trusting people again. That's a different issue altogether. Forgiveness is between you and God. Now, some people sometimes will say to me, well, you know, I can't forgive because I'm so angry. No, it's the other way around. You're so angry, that's why you can't forgive. You know, you, once you forgive, the anger goes. And it's an amazing thing. As powerful as anger is, anger is one of the easiest emotions to let go of. All you have to do is forgive. Um, now, see, Paul goes, these make sense. Bless, pray for those. You can do that at a distance. You can forgive them. It's funny, uh, Sigmund Freud says, yes, you have to forgive people, but it's best after they're dead. <laughs> I think what he meant is after you've killed them uh, yourself. Uh, you know, that's the natural way. That's the natural way. But this is a fascinating thing. As Paul says, even those who have hurt you the worst, don't avoid them. Look what he says. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, even those who hurt you. He's saying, you don't get to say, you're not going to be in my life. See, the day you do that, you're back to walls. You're back to self-protection. Now, I'm going to explain to you how you live with them, but the first step is to say, okay, this is, this is not natural. This has to be supernatural. Well, he goes further than that. He says, not only do you have to not avoid them, but you have to begin willing their good. Look what he says. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If, you're, if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Holy moly. Now he's not only saying do you have to not avoid them, but now if they have needs, you're to provide for their needs. You're to give. You're to minister to them. Now, understand something, and we're going we're gonna to keep pushing at this, is you have to understand the relationship you now have with them. If someone is persecuting you and someone has hurt you and they've proven over and over again that they're not, they're not really friend material, Paul calls them enemies. So he's not saying be a pushover. He's not saying be a doormat. He's saying understand the relationship you have to them. It's a relationship in which you will give to them, but you won't receive back from them. This doesn't mean make your enemy your friend. It means keep your enemy your enemy and, and understand the nature of it, but just keep giving to them and giving to them. This is basically ministry. This is basically ministry. If you keep thinking that your enemy is going to change into something other than your enemy by your powers of persuasion, you will be very disappointed. And don't marry your enemy. Many people marry over and over again the very enemies of their own soul. And it's fascinating to me because people often, I've, I've walked with people down long roads of life and I've seen them marry the same enemy over and over and over again, thinking that by getting divorced they have, they have escaped. Only they just go after the same issues, the same issues over and over again because they never understood the nature of relationship. Now, this, listen to me. If, if you understand the cost of your relationship and you're willing to pay it, you will always be healthy. There are people in your life who they will never give you more than 10 or 20%, and you'll have to give 80 to 90% of the relationship. If you're willing to do that and not complain, 
go for it. But don't expect that someone who gives you 10 is ever going to go up to 50. They won't. Unless, you know, supernatural. You can pray every day, it happens. But normally what I'm saying to you is you, you pay that cost. There are people that come to me and say, I want to marry this person. And I say to you, you understand that this is a 2080 relationship. No, no, they're going to get up. No, they're not going to get up to 50%. Do you see how damaged they are? you see how hurt they are? They believe that you're going to be their source of life. And so they're going to abuse you. They're going to treat you like they did their parents. They're going to treat you this way and that way. And, and it is going to happen. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news and your romantic illusions. But if you're willing to pay that price, then your relationship will be fine. And good will come out of it, but you will probably never get more than 20% out of this person. Because almost all of us, we all think it should be 50-50. You know, or we think it should be 100-100, or whatever we call it. And it never is, friends. You will usually marry someone who's very damaged because you're damaged yourself, and your damage attracts their damage. And then you're upset because they're not healthy. Well, guess what? You married them because you're not healthy. And the only way you're going to get any better is to get honest. And the only way the home is going to survive is if you decide, I'm going to will this person's good. Because even if your spouse is a wonderful spouse, the things they do for you will not connect with you. Because they don't, they don't know what you need from them. They don't know, know what you have to have from them. And it's a pretty fascinating thing that many of us in our relationships, we're all thinking they're all going to be the same. Not Very few of your relationships are going to be 50-50. And you have to look and say, who is this person I have a relationship and on what basis do I have a relationship? I, I can't focus on this real long, but I'm telling you this is important that you get this. Or you will continue to be disappointed with people. It, it's... In my own brokenness, what I realized coming out of my teenage years is that I had this hole, an opening that was really small for people to love me. And I was always disappointed because I thought, oh, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. And I remember this, this one part of, of that changed in my life was I started to realize that the love that God had for me was perfectly tailor-made for me, that, that he was the source of my, my real acceptance. He was the source of love unconditionally for me. And I began to, one, I began to let him love me the way his word says he loves me. Secondly, I began to believe what he said about me as a person, that I was a child of God, that I was a, a saint, that I was someone that he had called and chosen for himself, and that he thought I was precious. And I began to believe those things, and as that happened, then the, the opening got bigger. But what changed everything for me is, is really my wife, that I thought I was you know, I'm a, I was a Christian, I was going to be a missionary, I was going to be a pastor. I thought, man, she's just getting such a great husband. <laughs> and what I found was I was, I was full of lust. Um, I was angry with her all the time. I was disappointed with her all the time. I was critical of her. Um, 
I never was satisfied with anything she did for me. And for a long period in our marriage, I was actually influenced and under the control of the spirit of lust. And so when I looked at her, I did not see her as she was. And so when I revealed all this, because I kept it all secret, and I kept it all hidden, and I kept trying to be a pastor, but I had these spiritual influences, these lies that were, that were clouding my life, and I said, if anyone ever really knows me, they won't love me. And what happened is I got to the place in ministry where I could not be dishonest anymore, and I could not be hidden. And I was willing to leave ministry forever, but what the Lord did was he said, I can handle your honesty. And I began to express all the stuff I was wrestling with. I had a couple of friends who knew how to lead me out of it, out of the influences, out of the control of these evil spirits, which cause an impatience in you like nobody's business. And I dealt with the spiritual issues, and then... Once it was all out in the open and all the ways of broken promises to my wife, brokenness, lies that I told her, sinfulness in my life, I got it all out thinking she will divorce me, she'll be rid of me. Instead, what happened is she said, it hurts very deeply, but I still want you. You're the only one that I want. And it was for the first time I began to understand what unconditional love looked like. See, in some ways, I, I can tell you these practices, and there, there's one more that I want to conclude on. I can tell you these practices, but you will not be patient if you're not loved. Because the world will not love you. Even the people that you think love you, they have their own agendas. They'll disappoint you. They'll forget you. All kinds of stuff will happen. They'll change. You'll have... You'll become the caretaker when they were the caretaker. All kinds of changes happen. But there's one kind of love that never changes. It's an unconditional love. And the only love that comes that way is God. And what my wife showed me was not that she had love for me, though she did. She had a source of love which was greater than herself. And when all my secrets and all my shame was known, I was still loved. And matter of fact, it's still been going on for 35 years and it gets better all the time. I need to close this up with this. The fifth practice is basically you've got to oppose the bad humbly. In other words, the most loving thing possible is you, you don't let the people who sin against you go on sinning. You do it for their good. You confront them, but you don't do it so you can get it off your chest or whatever it is. You do it for them. Opposing without the process of forgiveness and love will never allow them to see the error of their ways. Here's, here's how that happened in my life. I could have gone on with a secret life because many of us, we're able to lie really well. And you can go on with, I could have gone on with a secret life playing like I love my wife and, and going after all kinds of other illicit things. But when she came and she loved me that much, knowing how I had failed her, knowing the ways that I had not succeeded in being loyal to her and faithful to her, and loving me in the midst of that, suddenly what happened is everything that was not love was being opposed by her love. And it, it shined such a light on the unloveliness of my life that it became very, very important to me to cut off a spirit of lust, to cut off any activity that was a part of that. See, 
in a sense, all of this centers on the gospel. The gospel is this, that God, who is righteous, has made a way for the unrighteous to come into right relationship with him. And when you decide that you're going to be bitter and angry, you're basically saying you're more righteous than other people. When you come to the gospel, you're saying, I am unrighteous. You're saying, I have no self-righteousness. But when you hold on to bitter and wrath and anger and revenge, then you're saying, I'm better than that person. What I know of the gospel is it's level ground at the cross. There are no stairs. There's no higher stages. There's only level ground. It's only for the unrighteous that he came. It's only for the needy that he came. It's only for those who realize they need mercy and they need grace. Would you pray with me? It's important today that you let bitterness go. But I think that the way you let bitterness go is partially that our first step is to, is to recognize that you're loved. So I just, I call down right now, and I believe the Spirit of the Lord is here powerfully administering the love of the Father to you. I'd like you to just respond with me with some words. Would you just say these words? I'm a child of God. Now, you know, you didn't, you didn't get that by works. You didn't get that by your morality. You got that by faith in Jesus alone. I am loved by the Father. Would you say that? And this is an everlasting love. He will never leave me. He will never disconnect from me. I have eternal life. As long as God exists, I will exist. Now, this is an important one. I used to be an enemy of God. But through grace, now I am a friend of God. Now, you have to make the decision. But if all those statements are true, then there's no place for bitterness. There's no place for unforgiveness. There's no place for self-protection. Because if your heart is connected to those truths, then Jesus is your defender. Lord, as we close out this service, I, can just, I, I just feel your spirit on us. I feel a sense of your patience and your power right now. Holy Spirit, come for Jesus' sake. Will you stand with me and we'll just sing this chorus as we finish. Spirit, you're in my trust, swift and